In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. Today by C.L. Mitchell and John Core. Gentlemen, welcome back. Hello. Hello. Thank you. We last time covered chapter 14 and we stopped, I believe, around verse 17, which seemed to act as a, a good place to stop at the time, uh, which is defined by God's promise to Abram. So I think what we should do today is, at least for our listeners, continue through that to the end of the chapter and perhaps introduce a an overview on chapter 15 prior to really getting into the depth of it in our next program coming up. I wonder if one of you gentlemen would kindly give us an update on uh, Genesis 14 before we close those final verses. Sure. You know, in, in chapter 14, uh Abraham is is depicted in various ways. First of all, he's a, he's Abraham the warrior in the first part of the chapter. Uh, he comes to his nephew Lot's um, rescue uh, after Lot uh, had been taken um, away, uh, and he goes and uh, defeats the kings that t- took him away. And then in the second part that we're going to see today, we're going to see Abraham the worshiper and then Abraham the witness, uh, where he is going to encounter uh, two kings. Uh, one. Uh, king of Salem, uh, Melchizedek, and the other one is the king of Sodom, who's unnamed. And it's going to show us a little bit about his character and a little bit about the blessing from God that is going to be in his life. Uh, and then uh, we'll see uh, how he uh, is going to respond to the offers of both kings uh, and show a little more of his character. And that will lead right into chapter 15. Uh, where God will show up on the scene and sort of um, reward Abraham for his conduct and his character as well. And so that's just the, that's just in chapter 14. And then we get to chapter 15, which is probably one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture, uh, where there's there's uh, a lot to talk about as far as um, God's relationship with Abraham and the basis for uh, his relationship and the basis for uh, really, his work he's going to do uh, through Abraham and through his uh, Abraham's uh, both physical and spiritual descendants as well. So that's sort of the overview uh, of the rest of 14 and 15 as well. And given that last statement, it may be ahead of time for our viewers, uh, perhaps a good thing to point out that chapter 15 may indeed uh, take more than a couple of programs here. Meanwhile, uh, we reach verse 17 of chapter 14. C.L. Mitchell, I wonder if you could uh, begin an overview of this final part of chapter 14, please. Yes, this this final 
aspect of uh, chapter 14 is going to really highlight the blessing of God again upon the life of Abram in lieu of his resistance of these two kings, number one, one from Sodom and the other from Gomorrah, um, who have names that are compounds of a Hebrew word translated evil in chapter 13, verse 13. Um, it refers literally back to the idea, not just these kings' names, but it refers back to the idea in 1313 of the overall condition, spiritual uh, disposition, if you will, of the place of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. So since uh, Abram refused to be made rich by their hands and refused to be uh, seen as in alignment with them, now is going to come along an individual um, whose name is Melchizedek, probably a surname or a title rather than his proper name. And what we're going to see is he is, number one, the first priest that is mentioned in the Bible. But not only is he the first priest, he is the first individual to bring together two offices, namely kingly office and priestly office. And he's going to render a significant blessing upon Abram. And then what we're going to see is he's going to become a canonical figure uh, in that he is going to connect with the person and the office and the work of Jesus Christ in that he is going to typify the antitype or typify the work of Jesus Christ in his kingly and in his priestly role in the New Testament paradigm. So the latter verses here, although they are brief, they are yet highly significant. You know, and just to, just to interject here, the it's significant because later on in the law, you have the offices of the priest or a priest that are separated from the role of the king. You cannot be a king and a priest according to the law of Moses. So here, before the law comes in, you have this character who uh, has both uh, roles. And what you have here is, as a priest, he represents the people to God. As a king, he represents, represents um, or actually vice versa, God to the people as a priest and, and king as people uh, to, uh, to God as well. And you have the roles put together in this this Melchizedek character who uh, we don't know where he's from. There, there isn't a mention of his birth, his genealogy, which is significant because uh, pretty much most of the characters through the, uh, up to this point have had some sort of genealogy mention. Uh, and so he's sort of a mystery uh, character and that comes on out of nowhere and it's interesting what he does uh, to Abraham in, in, and uh, his conduct towards him. Uh, so we'll see m more of that in a few minutes as well. But this, uh, these two offices that he has and the fact that Abraham is going to uh, consider Melchizedek a greater person because of his offering. It seems to me, from an analytical point of view, that I'm most interested here is verse 20, which completes by the statement that he gave him a tenth of all. Is there any uh, precedent set there? Is any any meaning behind this, a tenth of all? It seems to be a very strange uh, fraction or figure, as it were, to offer out. Well, I mean, obviously he's he's giving a, a tithe or a tenth, and he's giving to this king a tenth of all of the um, 
uh, the goods and and uh, the possessions that he had just gotten by defeating these uh, these kings that took over that took uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, so he's giving to this particular king. Now the question is, why? Why is he paying uh, tribute and giving a tenth of these possessions to this particular king? What is it about this particular king that he deserves, uh, or that Abraham recognizes in him? As uh, cons- as even considering to give, give him anything, and that's the question we're asking as far as you know the identity of this this king and and what he comes to do. If I may, well, I think I'm putting that into context here. Perhaps for you, C.O. Mitchell, that in many ways Abram is uh, refusing wealth of a material kind. Uh, and again, as you know me well, I try and put that into context in where we are today. Is it true that Abram would rather have um, uh, riches in terms of uh, uh, food and supplements and, and life for his people rather than having anything that is of a material purpose? I think that what we see here, and at the end of the day, the answer to that question is yes, but let me say yes with some clarification. Um, it is not simply wealth that he is resisting in so much as what we see um, in chapter 12 is a promise to bless him. What we see in chapter number 13 is a realization uh, of that blessing a beginning in, in to such a degree, in fact, that it basically forces the confrontation betwixt he and Lot and uh, literally actually uh, causes them to separate because both of them have been blessed to such an extent. I think what we see here is the source of blessing is important right. to Abram. Right. Um, he is not willing to take it from individuals who may, in fact, seek to take the credit for it from God, as well as he doesn't want wealth or or advantage by any means whatsoever. And, and this is why uh, it, it's not. Yeah, it's not the fact that he doesn't want wealth in general. It's the source of the wealth. And of course, as he as he is encountered first by this Melchizedek uh, person, uh, it's sort of I think in preparation for his encounter with the king of Sodom. Sodom is going to offer Abraham to keep all these possessions. And Abraham, in, in one sense, says no, because he does not want it to be known that he had gotten rich by Sodom. He wants his wealth, whatever he gets, to be from the Lord. So it's not having possessions or not having possessions. It is how one gets that and how, uh, and it's a blessing from God and recognizing that it is a blessing from God. And Abraham is one who who is going to entrust himself uh, to receive those things from the Lord himself. And, and by the way, I think that in chapter number 12, again, what we see is we see Abram accept wealth from Pharaoh, um, uh, but he does not from the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and I think there's an underlying concept that must be considered here, and that is uh, it is not the case that um, the believer Abram took a vow of poverty. Um, he, he wasn't trying to show his commitment to righteousness through a vow of prov- poverty, but he also uh, uh, was not trying to show the blessing of the Lord by wealth either. He realized that whether he had or whether he had not, the source of wealth uh, is 
important, in fact, superior over the wealth that one has. What's more is an attitude or a characteristic of wealth is what really allows one to be good stewardship of whatever God places within his or her hands. In in fact, uh, later on, I think it's in Deuteronomy, God talks about how uh, the, and I'm paraphrasing that the Jewish uh, nation should not boast uh, of anything uh, the fact that God has given them an abil- the ability to uh, to get wealth. It is, it's the ability that God has given uh, that they should recognize, and all of us should recognize that anything that we have is ultimately from the Lord, and how we use it should be uh, done for God's glory as well. Yes. and, and one, one could say here, however, that Abram is anticipating the culture ahead with Sodom and Gomorrah. And would you say that this rebuke of the wealth that is offered could be accepted as an insult by these men? Uh, certainly. In, in this particular area, hospitality is a huge deal. Uh, and and to not accept hospitality is a an August statement. Um, to refuse such kindness is an August statement. But I, but I think that... Uh, Abram's refusal is at the same time not just a cultural statement, it is a, it is a theological statement. And um, the attitude of these kings, they probably would have been quite delighted to have kept, frankly, uh, their goods. But I think there, there is something bigger that's going on here. Um, uh, they would see this as a fortune from their gods. Abram, in doing this, has done this, by the way, to rescue Lot. They just happen to be an appendix to the whole uh, rescue effort, if you will. They came along with the whole rescue effort. And I'm sure that while he's extending some mercy or some kindness toward them, he does not then want to affirm their theological convictions, nor does he want to affirm their grotesque practices, which, by the way, before again, chapter 14, it is established in chapter 13, verse number 13, that they are, in fact, exceedingly wicked. And the text does not have to give that descriptive term of exceeding or mayod or very wicked in order to describe them as being wicked, but there's something within the framework of this social, uh, this society and Sodom and Gomorrah within the framework of this geography, if you will, where wickedness is housed in an abominable way where it is not necessarily seen in other areas outside of the Amorite civilization. So in other words, Abram is anticipating this, does present a plan and does take the risk that he could alienate himself in the group of friends that he's currently surrounded with. I think his faith automatically alienates him and and causes him to be a sojourner. What's more, I think, again, the book of Hebrews argues that Abram is looking for more than just physical wealth. And and, and let me just make a comment here, and, and, and I think, John, you may want to jump in on this. I think it's significant that what we must realize is whatever we hold as believers or as unbelievers, we hold in temporality as at best. Um, it is fleeting. It is fl- fading. It is ebbing. We are ebbing. We may leave something great, but we will leave it or it will leave us or some kind of situation will work that together. It is the believer's um, it ought to be, according to the Bible, the believer's conviction that we do not lay up treasures here on earth where thieves can steal, rust can contaminate, or moths can eat up. But we lay up treasures in heaven uh, where things last on an eternal basis. And, and you see this uh, this, di- this difference between the two kings and their approaches. You have the one king 
Melchizedek who comes out to bless. He brings out uh, refreshment, uh, bread and wine to them. He, he, the notion you get is he is one to bless, to give. Whereas the king of Sodom comes out to take. He wants to take uh, what Abraham is rightfully his. And that's the difference is really is, is how you treat wealth as well and how you treat uh, material possessions. You can k- take it and keep it till you die and try to bury it with you and, and they, you know, put it in your tomb somewhere, but it doesn't bring really uh, any uh, fulfillment uh, to your life. But as you, as you respond to God's goodness and give it and, and consider it a blessing to others, uh, that is considered the better choice. And that's what you see here in Abraham who refuses the offers of Sodom, but yet he gives, uh, he gives nothing to Sodom, but he gives a tenth to Melchizedek. And, and that's a response to, to, uh, and recognition, a response to God's own goodness and giving back to how God has blessed you. And that's sort of the, how you can treat, uh, the material possessions. Either you keep it for yourself and, and, uh, and not receive any benefit as far as uh, uh, being a blessing to others, or you give it away and you bless others with it. And that's Abraham's attitude, I think, here as well. Before we continue the journey and depart from chapter 14 and arrive at chapter 15, are there any further or final statements that either of you gentlemen would like to make as we end this chapter? Uh, yes, I, I think one statement must be made if, if we deal with nothing else, and there are two great things to deal with really here. So probably just to make mention of both of those. First of all, in verse number 18, what we see is a person by the name of Melchizedek. Um, that is a um, conjunction of two terms conjoined together. Um, the term first is from Melach, which means king, Tzadik, which means righteousness, a literal translation of this title, if you will, um, is king of righteousness. Um, this is a theophoric name uh, that is common amongst kings of the ancient Near East. Um, and his name may have meant in another area, my king is Sadek or Milku is righteous, Sedek and Milku presumably being the names of gods that may have been in that ancient Near Eastern culture. I think that's more liberal. I would probably cite more on the area of Melech Sadiq, the king of righteousness, um, because of the character that is depicted to us later on. Again, as John was saying, the bread and wine were the royal food and drink of the day. And so he seems to come out and want to or be desirous of blessing Abram. Now, mind you, it seems that he is driven by God to pronounce this blessing and rehearse this blessing upon Abram that was already initiated in chapter number 12. So he seems to simply agree with and continue this concept in the form of something like a royal banquet given in Abram's honor, if you will. Uh, they probably are in geographic proximity to one another, may have had an earlier establishment of friendship, uh, but it does not seem, because he appears later on in the New Testament, his name that is, in Hebrews, that he is the pre-incarnate Christ. And a lot of uh, um, exegetes and uh, by 
Bible students have made this mistake. He seems to be a genuine person, a literal person, his own person, and not, in fact, to be an early figure, if you will, uh, or an early Jesus Christ before the incarnation proper. Uh, What seems best here is that uh, he is a real king and a real priest who exists during the time of Abraham and... uh, the God that Melchizedek worshipped as priest was the true God known to him as El Elyon or the possessor of heaven and earth or God most high. Um, and uh, the God that Abram honors, uh, he sees as synonymous with El Elyon. In other words, they are one and the same. So they have camaraderie or fellowship or communion as it pertains to the one true God. And so we must see him as real in this area. Next, what I think we need to note is this is not a formula to be established as a concept of tithing or tithatory giving throughout Scripture. In other words, this is the only time within the framework of Abram's life that we even have him giving a tithe. Yeah, and just just to note here is you you have him you don't have a command to to give. Abraham gives sort of out of uh, the gratefulness of his heart. He gives because he wants to give, and he recognizes God's blessing that he has he has received, and it's a right response. It's a, it's a heart of a worshiper. Is why it's why I called Abraham the worshiper in this section because it is his loving response to to a loving God, uh, and I think that's a very uh, critical uh, character that uh, Abraham has. Is he recognizes the work of God, the gifts of God. The things that he has is really from God. Here's a man who's been taken from Mesopotamia, and now he's enriched, and only God is the one who has done this, and he does not fall for the temptation of the king of Sodom who says, hey, take it all for yourself. He says, no, I'm not going to take even uh, one you know, one thing from you, one uh, thread or, or a sandal from you, because I don't, want, no, I don't want it to be known that I got rich uh, through your ways, but rather it was from the Lord. So, But you have this giving heart of Abraham, which is significant because it's going to grow later on and be tested, but you see a significant character of his heart of being a giving person and uh, and worshiping God in that way. Right, and and why does why does God bless Abram in this way? If you remember correctly, in chapter thirteen, He gave Lot the choice of the land. And then in this particular chapter, just as in the previous episode, where Abram allowed Lot to pick the land that he wanted, he also allows him here, uh, the king of Sodom, and Sodom rather, more than his due, because he really should have acquired goods from this, but he resisted this. And so I think two principles really should stand up here for us. He receives the blessing of God because the blessing of God is far more in its value and in its wealth and in its riches. We're not talking about materialistic here, but it's far more in value than any material temporal blessing or gift that we could ever receive. And we must remember this, that the gifts of the ungodly are often attached to deadly strings. But we also should realize that Christians are really so rich in their own inheritance that it ill becomes them to crave the possessions of others. In other words, we should resist craving others' possessions. We should rather uh, crave the blessings that come from God. And it's up to God whether he blesses us materially or spiritually, because when God blesses us, he blesses us in accuracy. And and one last thing, because this is going to all transfer into chapter 15, because the way that chapter 15 begins, is that you you see here in in his his refusal to accept 
uh, sort of the riches, uh, the offer from Sodom. You, you see how really a character a trait uh, in the question of how does a man handle success? Well, it, it, you see a perfect example how to handle success, so to speak. It is not by gloating in, in your abilities or, or by gloating in, you know, what you've done. It's really to recognize God's hand in it and to not try to achieve those, those riches, whatever they form may be, by ungodly means. Cause, um, the world does that all the time, but by, by recognizing and by allowing, um, you know, praise be, uh, to, to God for what he's blessed you with. And so, uh, some people, uh, handle success by gloating in themselves and, and patting themselves on the back, but all the while failing to recognize that it's God who is giving them the ability to do anything in this life. And so here Abraham, uh, exemplifies, uh, his, uh, this very wonderful trait. And that leads into, into chapter 15 as well. I would say that there are, in narrative terms, uh, through the, these first chapters of Genesis, a number of tests, uh, tests for these people who are chosen. And here we have Abram as one of those, and we have Noah. But is there a connection, uh, contextually, between the test that we see here and the test that we saw in the Garden of, of Eden? Uh, yes, there is. Uh, in fact, and, and I think John would probably want to, to speak to that as well, um, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil set boundaries. In other words, um, why can't you have this? Because God said you can't. And you are to honor and respect God. And the concept is you are not to gain something that God, number one, says you ought not have. And secondarily, you are not to try to gain it by any means necessary. And, and the boundaries that he puts on us is not because he's uh, a killjoy. It's really for our, it was for our own good. Everything, like if you think of the first couple of chapters in Genesis, everything had a boundary. Day had a limit. Night had a limit. The seas had, had a limit. And I think the principle there was, is that we are finite beings and that we are, uh, we have to recognize that and that when we try to go beyond what is established as boundaries for us, it's dangerous for us. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's the same, uh, the, the principle of, of, of allowing God to set those boundaries and recognizing those boundaries are good for us and, uh, and, and are therefore our own good. It's important to recognize that then in this way, that in the garden we saw the boundary broken. In Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel, we saw the boundary broken. Here with the offer of wealth, we see Abram saying, you know what? I'm not going to break that boundary. I'm going to honor the Lord. What God wants to allot or award, he may do so. I'm going to seek to acquiesce, that is, surrender to the will of God and his omniscient awareness, that is, his all-knowing awareness of what really is best for me. And here this, there is a principle that is, is true in life today is that you know, there, there's often opportunities to take shortcuts to ex- achieve a certain goal or success or whatever, and those shortcuts don't always, uh, especially if they're, um, you know, they're kind of going around or cheating or whatever, um, evading, uh, you know, moral principles. Uh, they don't, they don't, they may, you may get them in the, in, uh, for a short term, but in the end, they come back, uh, to haunt you. And you have, um, you have uh, the same principle where, 
uh, Christ who is who is sent to this earth to live a life and then to die on the cross, and he is faced with the temptation uh, when he is tempted by the uh, by this, uh, the, the devil of taking a shortcut by uh, by attaining the uh, the wealth or the the kingdoms of the world without the cross. And if he took that shortcut, we wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't be talking about redemption. But the fact he did not take that shortcut and he did things the way he was supposed to do as far as living his life uh, righteously and and, uh, dying for the sins of the world, then we have the blessing that follows that. After the cross comes, of course, the, the crown. And the same principle adheres with Abraham. He is he is trusting God for this sort of delayed gratification, which in our modern world today is very uh, a different concept. We're not used to that. But he has this waiting on God principle and allowing the Lord to lead him into the right places and bless him uh, in the right ways. And that's why we, when we see chapter 15 begin, God begins by saying, you know, I am your shield and your reward will be very great. Because of the fact that you have said no to the king of Sodom, I'm going to be your reward, and I'm going to give you your reward as well. And really what we're looking at here, gentlemen, with chapter 14, in layman terms, or uh, simplifying it for our audience, with Lot is uh, the the famous statement of uh, um, short-term gain, long-term pain. And then we can see, I'm assuming, as we approach the end of this chapter, uh, Abram ensuring that that uh, paradigm uh, is squashed, uh, trying to uh, oppose that. I do have one question for our audience, though, before we leave this chapter, and I'm sure that they are uh, they have thoughts about this. What would the conditions have been between Abram and these gentlemen? Would these gentlemen simply have walked away, been happy, uh, that they had maintained their wealth or or kept um, part of the gifts that they had intended to give Abram? Uh, would they have acknowledged Abram's um, uh, uh, state uh, with the Lord? Or would they simply have walked away, uh, Abram walked away, and no real impact on either side? I think that a definite impression is left upon them. And I don't think that uh, Abram really leaves room for them to come to their own conclusion concerning that. And let me just clarify what I mean by that. Um, in verse 22, chapter 14, verse 22, Abram makes it clear why he's rejecting any gift from them. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord... God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal, thong, or anything that is yours, for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. Um, I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. And then he begins to name Anur, Eshkol, and Mamre. Uh, let them take their share. I think they would have walked away, first of all, with this impression that this is a man of faith who has convictions that are made manifest convictions, biblical convictions, or rather, should I say, um, God-driven convictions that are made manifest in his sociological relationships. In other words, he's not a person who can be uh, manipulated to go outside of his faith convictions as we see at this particular point. He's strong in the faith. 
Next, I think they would have respected him because although he's strong in the faith, he does not try to impose his same sort of um, uh, um, um, attitude here on the men that went with him. When I say attitude, I don't mean attitude of faith. I mean, in other words, he wants to take care of the men who fought alongside him and see to it that they are able to gain their rightful due from the spoils of the war that they've just fought. So he does care for them. So he's not just trying to impose um, um, this upon those men that traveled with him. So I think they would have had respect for him. Third, I think that they would have had respect because notably he won the war. And rescued them. So they have to know that there is something to his conviction of faith that's not just flippant and not just shallow, but rather God himself has proven that he is fighting on behalf of Abram, who went with very few soldiers and certainly should not have won under the circumstances. So I think they would have walked away with that impression. But I also think that they may have, number four, walked away with this, um, uh, this, interesting, kind of that's odd, or what's different about him? And I'm not sure that that was clearly answered for them, not because Abram didn't give God the glory, but because their hearts, again, were exceedingly wicked. And in so much as their hearts were exceedingly wicked, what he gave to them was a witness. And the Holy Spirit's job is to convict and convince the world of sin and righteousness. So whether they surrender to that witness or not, and I think, in fact, that they did not surrender to that witness, yet they had a witness nonetheless. And now I want to project into the future. Our responsibility is not to impose, to enforce, or to force. Rather, ours is to walk by biblical convictions. Ours is to walk in accordance with Scripture as the Holy Spirit enables us to do that and be very transparent and vocal where we have the opportunity to, with respect, concerning our God and Savior, concerning all that he has done in our lives, concerning the line of demarcation. We will do this. We will not do this. And then allow that witness by the Holy Spirit to bring about convincing reality in the hearts of those who hear. And we may, in fact, see some gloriously one to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if we don't see them one, yet and still they have a stellar testimony that they can say, I've had a an encounter with a godly person, and according to one Peter, in the day of visitation, they can give God glory as a result. And I and that was really looking, what I was looking for in that statement, and I so appreciate that response, uh, CL. If we may, with that, move on to chapter 15 in the final part of our program today, uh, turning to John Core, John, we clearly don't want to rush this chapter. Um, Abram promised a son, and I do believe that we all concurred that perhaps one to six would be a good starting point today. You had mentioned uh, before uh, the point on on the shield uh, that, that God is uh, providing Abram. Would you like to give our audience, a very brief overview of this chapter before we take it verse by verse. Sure. Um, Chapter 15 is probably one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture. In fact, 
it introduces uh, the ideas of uh, of righteousness and how righteousness is attained. And in fact, it's uh, particularly with verse six um, is used by the Apostle Paul uh, and and also James uh, in the New Testament uh, to talk about some very significant and probably found very foundational doctrines of of Christianity. And so this chapter is a, a extremely important ch- a chapter as well, uh, and uh, and so w- obviously we're not going to have time for the whole thing. But first, you have uh, God giving Abraham assurance in the first few verses uh, because he has just uh, finished his battle. Perhaps these kings he defeated might come back. He also gives them this this uh, this uh, assurance of of reward that what he has delayed right now will be re- rewarded sometime in the future as well. Uh, you also have a picture of Abraham struggling with his faith because of the promises God has given, um, and God reassures him of his of his objection and his and his uh, his questions as well. And then, in response to that, in ref- uh, you have God giving that uh, reaffirmation of his promises, reaffirming that what he had told him way back in chapter twelve will take the, uh, will take place. Then you have Abraham responding to that uh, with belief. And uh, it says that he had believed God and the Lord accredited to his righteousness. So he believes God. And then, of course, you find out the consequences of that is this, this idea of being accredited with righteousness. And this is a reckoning with righteousness. Uh, that is uh, the, the, what Abraham will receive because of his belief. And then, and then after that, we'll see um, uh, God sort of going through a ceremony to sort of guarantee and give Abraham a, a sort of a uh, a physical uh, memory and in, in a in a in a, in a uh, tangible way that he can look back and say God has performed this ceremony, which was sort of this is my guarantee, and he's going to go through the ceremony guaranteeing that he will do everything that he has promised Abraham, and if he does not, then terrible thing that terrible things happen to God Himself, and God will assure He is giving the certainty of His promises through the ceremony, and and pronouncing um, uh, a guarantee of these promises. So you have a lot of assurance and re reaffirmation, but you also have uh, the results of Abram's belief, which is this uh, righteousness that he he uh, he receives. And so there's a lot here, but that's kind of the uh, sort of you know the general tone of the of the chapter that God reaffirms. And does something to actually guarantee his very promises. Now, let me turn to you, C.L. Mitchell, because we are approaching the end of the program, sir. I believe that um, as we have um, experienced in the many uh, discipleships that you have um, hosted and have taken, that there was always this question that came up the vision. What is this vision? People always ask. They say, how does that manifest itself? Could you clarify that vision as a dream or uh, or a, uh, a, a real event? Could you explore that for me? Yes. This concept of vision is a God-ordained, enabled spiritual insight that need not happen when one is asleep. You can certainly have dreams. Uh, Sometimes the Bible uses in translations uh, the word um, uh, trance. Uh, I want to be very careful to protect 
um, our use of that term because by that we do not mean a transcendental meditation sort of experience nor an out-of-body experience nor a new age experience um, when I say new age, note well that I'm also resisting an early Babylonian um, experience as well. In many cultures, they also had uh, these types of practices. That's not what we're talking about, and we're not making this experience parallel to other experiences that uh, individuals have had on a secular basis. Rather, this is a God-ordained, God-enabled insight into either a situation that is going on or a futuristic scenario that will occur that brings to bear either God's character and word in a situation or the person's character and activity within a situation in a way or means by which they are to uh, act as empowered by God to accomplish a certain goal that God wants to be accomplished for his glory and on behalf of his people. In the New Testament, you see Peter have a vision. Uh, It is God-empowered, God-enabled. It is clarifying um, Peter's character. Um, At that point, he stands in contradiction and in opposition to the Gentilic nation or to the Gentiles. And in fact, God has to clarify what I have um, cleansed. You do not have the right to call common or unclean. And he does that for the sake of revealing to um, uh, Peter his will for him to go and actually preach to the Gentiles and introduce them into the messianic promises. So that's a New Testament depiction of that. In this particular area, in Genesis 15, also uh, in Exodus, what we're going to see is we're going to see that it involves some sort of um, um, epiphany uh, or some sort of anthropomorphism. Uh, these are fancy words. The the uh, theological terms that are employed here simply mean, we'll f- take first anthropomorphism. It means when God uh, literally takes on some sort of human depiction or some sort of recognition recognizable depiction in which he causes the human being's mind to become aware of his express presence, his divine presence in a recognizable human form or way. And so you can have that by way of vision or you can have that by way of language, the eyes of God, the finger of God, the hand of God. Uh, you have this language, not to argue that God in fact does have these for God is spirit according to John 4 and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. But because God is so um, transcendent, um, not so transcendent that we cannot think of him nor communicate with him, it is important then that he condescends to the human vernacular language or mental thought so that we can somehow understand or capture or encapsulate him communicating himself to us. This is the very thing that he does in the incarnation, but that is not a vision, that is a reality. So before we ever see the incarnation, God himself cares to, in the form of a vision or in the form of epiphanies or in the form of appearances, make himself clear to his servants in Old Testament history so that we can, they can really, the original audience, see or understand 
understand what he desires or aspires to communicate to them. And in our final minutes of the program today, John Core, I believe that what we see in chapter 15 is a complete affirmation of the decisions that were taken by Abram in chapter 14. Yeah, you actually have you have an affirmation uh, of of his 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 conduct and his character, and saying, uh, whereas Abraham has refused to uh, to become rich uh, through Sodom, God says, "I will I'm going to enrich you, so to speak. I'm going to reward you for that." So you have the affirmation that his actions are not unnoticed. You know, the things that you do for God. Though they may be secret, God sees them, and he takes notice of them, and there comes a day and a time and a place where he rewards you and affirms you that what you've done, though even it's a, it's a sacrifice, and though you could have gotten um, gain by it uh, temporarily, um, he sees the decisions and the sacrifices that people make uh, for him, and he rewards them. Uh, in his time, you also see the affirmation of the promises made from chapter twelve. We're now in chapter fifteen. He's going to make good on those promises, or at least guarantee them, uh, with a very significant, uh, so to speak, down payment. You might say with the ceremony. Uh, and so, yes, Abram's faith is going to be reaffirmed because of his actions in chapter fourteen. But also, his faith that maybe had been waiting a long time since chapter twelve is going to be reaffirmed as well because. Uh, the real promise that Abram is waiting for is the promise of the son and the promise of land. And so far, he has not received uh, neither. And so God's going to reaffirm him uh, as well as that. And so uh, you'll see that as we as we continue on um, uh, next week as well. And that is where we have to unfortunately leave us leave the program today. Uh, for our viewers, we will be returning back to Genesis chapter fifteen uh, next week. John Cole, C.L. Mitchell. Gentlemen, thank you very much as usual for sharing your wonderful knowledge on this program today. Thank you. Thank you. And to our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as we have. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, God bless you. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. Com.